John chapter 6, I'm going to begin reading verse 1. After these things, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. The great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he, he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad over here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, that is the people, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled Twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. What was the purpose of that miracle? Was it to teach compassion? The teaches that we should feed the hungry. Certainly it was a miracle. It was a display of divine power. Five barley loaves and two fishes. And 5,000 fed with 12 baskets of leftovers. Was it merely a, a hook to keep the people following him? After all, you notice verse 2, a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. Well, the same people who were present for the miracle, who ate the bread, came following him to the other side of the sea. And in verse 26, Jesus addresses them. And he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Jesus will now use 
This regular hunger, this natural hunger to illustrate a need of, of greater things, a greater hunger. Here, he uses the illustration of bread. And bread was a staple. That is, it was the most central thing of the diet. Notice Jesus, when he says what he does in verse 26, he doesn't mention the fish. He just mentions the bread. And then he follows that up in verse 27. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal upon him. Don't labor for that which is perishing. And so verse 28, they ask him a question. They said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? That question has sort of a familiar sound to it. What shall we do that we may work the works of God. They understood that when Jesus said what he said in verse 27, that he was exhorting them to something, something higher than simply taking care of earthly appetites. But they got the type of labor wrong. It was like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what good thing shall I do? that I might inherit eternal life. It's the same kind of question that is going on when they say, what shall we do? It's always good to have a concept in our minds when we read the Word of God. And this concept that I would bring up to you today is one we've mentioned before, but it's, it's the law-gospel distinction. The law-gospel distinction. There's a great distinction between the two. And that's what's in view here. They say, what must we do? They're thinking as people under the law. What shall we do? What is it that God demands? What does he give his approval to? This is the thought of one who's operating under the law. Yet in verse 29, Jesus gives them the answer. Jesus said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. How do we know the difference between the law and the gospel? It's really quite easy. The law says do this and live. The gospel, on the other hand, tells us what Jesus has done. The law says you do this. Gospel says, this is what Jesus has done, and he has done it for you. As one has said, the law demands everything and gives nothing. Paul will tell us, nobody's ever been saved by keeping the law. The law demands everything and gives nothing. And the gospel gives everything and demands nothing. That's as Jesus replied in verse 29. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. That's it. 
That's it. That's, that's, not even, that's not even a work. That you believe in him whom he has sent. Ah, so there's something for us to do then. There's a work. It's, it's believe, right? Faith is a work. Belief is a work. We've got something to do. Yay! We can contribute to our salvation now. We're co-saviors. Not quite. He said, this is the work of God. Yes, we must believe. But believing is not a work. Not on our behalf. We need to make something quite clear because it's greatly confused. The gospel is what Christ has done. We receive the truth of it by faith. Faith does not qualify you to come to Christ. Thomas Boston once said, Faith is coming to Christ. Faith is coming to Christ. Faith and trust are not saviors. Jesus is Savior. Believing is not the gospel. It is the means by which we receive what Christ has done. Just like living a holy life is not the gospel, but an evidence of being saved. We can't stand at the end and say, let me into thy kingdom, Lord, because I have lived a holy life. Because if you try to say that, you're a liar. You've lived, at best, a teeny, weeny part of a holy life. Maybe you say, well, but yeah, I tried. Believing is not the gospel, it's the means by which we receive what Christ has done. Verse 30, therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? If we're supposed to believe in you, you've got to do something for us. Verse 31, notice where they go with this. Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now remember, as they try to turn things around, if we are believing you, what work will you do? Well, Remember earlier, Jesus had fed them. They brought nothing, yet he provided. I guess not, in, in what I was saying previously, maybe can illustrate it this way. You're invited over to someone's house for supper. All you have to do, what did you have to do to, to prepare supper? Nothing. Nothing. What do you have to do then? You have to receive. Well, okay, so you're sitting there at the table, and it, here you have this beautiful plate before you. Maybe, maybe it's a ribeye steak. Remember those days when we could afford those? <laughs> and you're looking at it, it's done just right. And there's a nice baked potato next to it. 
See, you're sitting there, you've got all this fine food in front of you. What are you going to do? Well, I've got to do something. Ah, I know. In order to receive this food, I will trust and believe that those who prepared it for me are not trying to poison me. That this is good and healthy food for me to eat. Ah. So after supper's over, do you sit there and say, man, I am so glad that I believed and trusted these people with this food so that I would eat this food. God provided manna in the wilderness. Verse 31, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus reminds them who gave them the bread. In verses 32 and verse 33, most surely I tell you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of heaven is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so verse 34, then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. So Christ's response is that once again we see the Old Testament pointing to a fulfillment in the New Testament. And that is, what was the manna all about? Why was it just manna from heaven? Why was it just one thing? Why wasn't, why didn't it, why wasn't it bread and carrots? Or any other thing that you might want to throw in there. It was just bread. That's it. And that is what sustained them. It came from God, it sustained them, it preserved their lives. So it was pointing from an earthly thing to a spiritual fulfillment in Christ, as Christ is doing right now and showing, I am the bread of life. I am the bread that came down from heaven. So you see, he says, that manna pointed to him. Well, we jump over to verse 47, he says, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. <laughs> Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your father, see, he's going back to it again. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world, those in the world who would believe. The Jews therefore quarreled amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, there are people who will stand up and say, you know, the only way to interpret the Bible is literally. The only thing that you can do with the Bible is take it literally. 
Well, you're going to miss out on a lot of what the Bible has to say if you're just going after literal meaning. And you're going to be really repulsed about what Jesus said here. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and were dead and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. There's an expression that has been commonly used by believers in previous generations. Jesus has just used it in our confession in chapter 30 and verse 7. That expression is used again. Chapter 30 is the Lord's Supper and paragraph 7 tells us Worthy receivers outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance do then also inwardly by faith really and indeed yet not carnally and corporally but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death the body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally, but spiritually present, spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance. And the, as the elements themselves are, so to their outward senses. Feeding upon Christ. Receive and feed upon Christ crucified. And all the benefits of his death we need to see that when we feed on something literally, we are taking in the benefits of it. We are being nourished, if you will. And this is what Jesus is portraying symbolically for us. That feeding on Christ is receiving the benefits of his body and his blood. It has to be taken in. You can look at a a cluster of grapes and you can look and say, wow, look at how nicely formed those grapes are and how ripe they are. And you can admire the size and the colors, but it won't give you the benefit of the nutrients. We can look at beef in the meat section. And if one side says, here's beef raised on four-year-old round bales that were left out in the weather and actually made from Johnson grass. And then there's another section over here where it says this is grain-fed beef. It's what we're feeding on that makes all the difference. And this is what Paul has in mind when he writes what he does in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 16. 
the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? We are taking in the benefits of the bread of life, and that's eternal. Eternal spiritual benefits. It's not just a memorial. These are not merely symbols, but they're a reminder of Christ being spiritually present with us. It's a reminder of what Jesus said in, in John chapter 6 and verse 40. Whenever we come to the table, this comes to my mind. Jesus said, and this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It reminds me of what he said in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It reminds me of the assurance I have that Jesus said in verse 47, Most assuredly I say to you, He who believes in me has everlasting life. It reminds me that Jesus said that I need to do this often. I need to re remember. I need to be brought back to that place where I see those things that he has done for me because in my own mind, I start doing the things that I think I need to do to be saved. And I have to be brought back to what he did to save me. And this lays at the heart of partaking the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. That is, if you can look at the elements and not see what Christ has done in the giving of Himself, then by all means you should not partake of it. But if it brings you back to where you see once again, it's not the great thing that I do. It's the great thing that he has done. I invite you to stand for a moment of prayer. In, the, in a moment, we're going to sing hymn 246, which is Man of Sorrows.